You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Terry Riley titled, Forgiveness, Give It, from the series, PT's Favorite Talk. For more info, visit creekside.org. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to get there in just a couple of minutes. And um, as I said last week, this isn't my favorite talk. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll, I'm gonna tell you probably in a couple of weeks when I say this is probably my favorite talk. I've never given it, but I know what it's gonna be. It's kind of a theme of who of who I am as a pastor, and and I just I, I'm kind of excited about it. And uh, but I wanted to t- coming back, just kind of hitchhiking onto this series. I wanted to talk to you about these are probably some of my favorite talks in terms of just the importance of them for the life of people and the life of a church and and us growing together. Last week I noted forgiveness is the core of the gospel. It's central to our relationship with God, and obviously it is central to our relationships with one another in this community and context, as well as every other relationship we have. It is the message that was proclaimed from Jesus through the church and to the church, and is to be proclaimed by us to a world that needs forgiveness. Now, before I start, I just want you to know, I, I, uh, I, I forgave my brother last week who took my parking spot with that nice Porsche. <laughs> All is clear. We met. We talked. We exchanged emails. And he repented. <laughs> and uh, I forgave. And then I told Brother Pete, I says, listen, if you beat me to this spot, it's yours. All is forgiven. Now, forgiveness has two sides. It's, it's receiving and it's giving. Remember in our Lord's Prayer we noted last week, Jesus said, when you pray to the Father, pray like this. Father, forgive us our debts and our sins as we forgive our debtors and those who sin against us. So we see the first side of that is that we need to receive forgiveness from God. And that's what we talked about last week. And we kind of just did kind of a fun way of really understanding how big a sinners we are. No matter how good we feel about ourselves, we're sinners. And then we understand that not only because Jesus did that for us, we're called to do it to others and extend that to the people around us. I love what one little boy prayed. He said, Father, forgive us our trash trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. (laughs) And isn't that true? Isn't that how life goes? And I would be willing to bet there's probably a few of you who are with me today and you could honestly say I've kind of got some trash in my baskets that other people have put there. And that's really what I want to talk about today, loved ones. And it's a tough truth. To forgive literally means, see, it's, it's, I, I love when I think about God's forgiveness. Ah, just blow it over me. Just wash me. But when I start thinking about how I've got to forgive, it gets really hard. Because what it really means, it means to send away to let go. And rather than hanging on to the hurt, to the pain, to the trauma, don't we all want to just extract a little pound of flesh? Don't we want to judge and punish? But when Jesus talks about forgiveness, he talks about letting go, sending away. And I think, you know, the reason so many of us want to hold on to it, because we really do believe at some point that if I hold on to it, guess what? I will punish them, and they will know I am mad, 
and, and I'll get back at them. But the sad thing is, every medical, every periodical you can read, when you talk about lack of forgiveness, living in resentment, revenge, and bitterness, it never affects the other person. It affects you, and it becomes toxic to your soul and to your heart. So we want to know that there's, we want to understand. I want you to hear, loved ones, there's great freedom. And literally, I mean freedom for yourself and forgiving others. But there's also great bondage. There's imprisonment in your own heart and soul when we don't forgive others. We are to forgive, bottom line, because we have been forgiven. Hence, everything that is true of Jesus' forgiveness, except for probably a couple of little points, are to be true of our lives that we begin to pass, relay on to others. You, you, you probably understand this if you've studied and done any comparative religious studies. When you look at them, they, you know, the other religions, they have the solutions that they come up with to deal with guilt and shame and that looks like forgiveness. And if you look at the particulars of other religions and, and humanistic ethical teachings and beliefs and philosophies, and let's just say you put them alongside Christianity, what are you going to see? Well, it doesn't look that much different, does it? They all say the same general things. Don't steal. Be a giver. Be generous. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Don't hurt. Be kind. Be willing to forgive, not hold on to, and be vengeful. So they all are pretty similar. But there's one major distinctive loved ones that we can never forget. And it's this. We're talking about not a belief system, but a person. A person that has said this. I don't have a solution. I am the solution. And we want to look at that today. We want to see Jesus as the solution that helps us through this issue. Now, as I get into this, I wanted to share a personal story. And this happened back in 2007. Very serious, very, very serious and significant benchmark in the life of my ministry in this church. And we made a decision. The legal membership of this church had come together to deal and hear about this issue because uh, I believe in full disclosure and honesty whenever something major happens. And so I needed to do this with the legal membership of our church. I was on holiday and I got this long distance phone call that said, uh, PT, don't want you to be surprised when you get home, but there's been a major happening. And they begin to tell me what happened, and there was some significant, serious criminal activity that had happened against the church. So I get this, and I know that when I come home, I've got some pretty significant things and issues and decisions to make with the leadership of this church. Now, hear me, the, the reason I can talk about this, our, our, our people, and they were so good about this, we made the decision that once we dealt with it because of the criminal activity and element and all of that, we said we are not going to talk about this after these meetings. I'm talking about it now because of this talk and because some things have happened in the last few months that I, I feel at liberty to at least generally state this. But what happened is, is that the person that committed the criminal act was somebody that Trina and I had really, um, in a sense metaphorically speaking, kind of res help them resurrect their life in Christ with their family. Nervous breakdowns, come through a divorce, broken financially, and we just helped them, helped her, and we gave her a job and made her part of our staff, and we just saw this person move forward in Jesus and get their life together, really get it healed. And then this is the person that committed the criminal act. You have to understand why this was so difficult for 
difficult for me because going into this meeting with the legal membership of our church, I had no idea if I would come out of there with a job. Because I told them my opening statement was every one of you tonight is going to have to make the determination if this was a dereliction of duty on my part or if this was a really smart criminal. And after the evidence was presented and even the police and the investigators said that this was a very smart, uh, very smart person the way they did it, uh, fortunately there was grace extended toward me. Uh, change is obviously made after words in just one key area that they found the chink here's the point this hurt me deeply because this is a person that I'd helped greatly in so many ways trusted trusted so much and then for this to happen ultimately they were we decided we would take it to court we did they were tried and I said to this person I said I've given you my best and I will continue to do that. I, I, I do forgive you. But you're going to have to give me time for you to feel that forgiveness. And I said, one of the best things you can do is come back to this church and reacquaint yourself in a different way with our people and show them that you will stand up and do whatever is asked of you in the criminal system. And, and then you can be healed through it as well as bring healing to us and to me. They tried once or twice and said they couldn't do it and never did. And I have to tell you, that really hurt me. It really bothered me. And, and, I, and, I, and I just kind of took that and I said, you know something? I feel like someone, me, I needed to balance the universal scales of justice in this situation. And I had to work through it for a, a season of time. And I say to you, how do you handle it when you're unjustly treated, bumped, mishandled, irritated, or something just rips you off? Oh, you may not. I didn't do this. The church would have never seen me double up my fist, but inside there was a doubling up of my soul. And it's where this happened that really nobody saw. I took this posture of soul, and it made me so vulnerable to many other things in life. And the same thing happens, loved ones, to you and me. See, we kind of put on our little Christian nice faces and we're just nice and nice, but inside we're wondering what in the heck is going on. And we double up our fists and we begin to justify those feelings of hatred, of vengeance, of bitterness, of resentment. And we can be surrounded with people who will hear the data of what took place and they will say, I don't blame you. As a matter of fact, you should be just ripping off Matt anyway. Let it rip, let it fly. Let it out. And we begin to believe that we can respond a certain way, except, <laughs> except the Lord of heaven who has forgiven us calls you and I to live in a whole new kingdom dimension. And we're going to see in the text today where he talks about the kingdom of heaven is like. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're not talking about pie in the sky, ethereal stuff. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom. It's not an earthly existence. It's not a place we go to. We are, Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. It's within you and it's within me. And in the presence of God Almighty, we carry the kingdom with us. And because of that, he says, you get to live differently. You get to act. You get to respond. You get to love at a whole different dimension. And this can only happen, loved ones, 
in what we're talking about today when we begin to understand the depths of our forgiveness from the high court of heaven. And because of that, we can never stand in judgment of any inequity or unfairness. It's a tough truth. See, teaching of Scripture is clear, yet walking out is so difficult. Probably no one in here is able to do it all the time. And sometimes we can say, well, you know, it's just the devil that's causing this. No, it's not. The problem really is our weakness of soul. It's our, weak, it's our flesh. It's who we are. I, I don't have time to read it this morning, but I, my men's health magazine, I got it this couple weeks ago, and there's just a great article on, on revenge, which is really the opposite of forgiveness. And it says we're hardwired for that. But it goes on to say, and you can hear, you know, every medical thing in the world says, when you, when you seek out revenge, when you're unwilling to work toward forgiveness, it will always affect the unforgiver. And that's why this is so critical, loved ones. We begin to think, I deserve to hold on to this or that or be against them. In my situation, this is, this is how God always works. He knew that they're continual. And even today, I'm dealing with something that has been ongoing for years. And this is what I know. The Lord God Almighty is at work because he's trying to siphon some things out of my soul. And he will use people and circumstances to consistently and constantly do it so that at some point I continue to look more and more and more like him. See, when I come to the heavenly judge, the just one who is presiding on his bench of eternal justice, and I want to plead my case, there's only one appeal. There's really only one response. Let it go. Plead your case. Declare your rights. Demand justice. And usually while you're doing that, it's so quick that we forget the offenses against the triune God of heaven who will sit there and ask us again, on what grounds do you plead your case? I have forgiven you every wrong, every sin of debt. Now I call you to do the same. Oh, and you sit here. Some of us probably hear this. That's not right. That's not fair. I don't like that. I can't. I won't do it. And there's times I've kind of said that and I think, oh, Jesus, I'm so glad that wasn't your heart. I want to look at a story that drills deeply into the souls of the listeners then and into the hearts of us today, I believe. And so if you would, let's pick up the parable. Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Lord, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And I'll explain all this in a few minutes, but I just want to read it to you. Jesus says, well, I tell you, uh, not as many as seven but 70 times 7. And so now Jesus, that's all he says, and then he goes into this parable, this story, this riff on what he's talking about, and he says again, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about that thing that you're in, you have entered into, this new dimension of life and living. 
and thinking and acting and behaving and believing. My domain, my dimension, not yours. He says, understand this, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Now, there's differing thoughts on this, but a number of scholars believe that a talent was literally a lifetime of earnings. You picking it up here? 10,000 lifetimes of earnings. That's what this guy's debt was. This guy's brought before the master, and since he had no way, underscore, no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he and his wife and his children and everything had to be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave threw himself at the mercy of the court, and he fell face down before him and said, be patient with me. I will pay you everything. Really? I mean, really? Talk about an overstatement. An over-evaluation of self. But notice those words in just a minute. Then the master of the slave, it says he had compassion. He was moved in his guts, released him and forgave him of the loan. But that slave went out. I mean, get this. It's like this guy goes, he just gets this reprieve on his family and his life. And it's like he makes this U-turn and what does he do? He went out and he found one of his fellow slaves, a common slave worker, And he says that owed him 100 denarii, which would have been probably a couple of months' wages. He grabbed him, and he grabs him, and he starts choking. He grabs him by the throat. I mean, get the picture. It's like he picks him up. Give me the moolah. It's crazy. And then his friend or his fellow guy says, he's begging him. And there's a ringing. It's, I can't believe there's not a ringing in this guy's ear where he hears, be patient with me. I'll pay you back. <laughs> but he wasn't willing. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, he went and he threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. There's a lot of stupidity in this passage right here. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed, and they went and they reported to the master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned, the master had summoned, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow slave as I have had mercy on you? And his master got angry, and he handed him over to the jailers. Some of your translations say jailers, some tormentors, some say torturers. We'll talk about that. Until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. here's the question by Peter. Peter asked Jesus, how should I forgive my brother? I mean, he sins against me up to seven times. Now, you got to understand, Pete's being really magnanimous here. Pete's a smart guy. I mean, he always wants to look good in front of Jesus. So he says, you know, because back if you read Amos in the prophets, uh, in, the, in the little books, the prophet Amos, uh, he's, he's doing this, again, this riff with, about judgment and forgiveness to the nations. And, and they're talking, God's speaking through the prophet. And he says, you know, you forgive him three and four times. So the rabbis used to taught teach that, man, if you taught, if you, if you forgave somebody three times, man, you were, you were doing it. That was it. So Peter's thinking, okay, three, 
I'll double that six, add one for safe measure, and then I'll tell Jesus that, and he's going to look at me and go, boy, Peter, you got it. And no, Jesus goes, no, no, Pete, let me, let me kind of readjust your thinking here. We're talking about kingdom stuff, kingdom dimension. It's 70 times seven, bro. And you guys just think calculations, 490. Now hear me, this is not Jesus trying to set up some kind of mathematical, difficult, over-the-top bookkeeping system so that you've got to remember 490 shots and then you shut it down. He's using hyperbole here to say, you know what? You just forgive. You let it go. You send it away. See, that's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5. When he says, listen, love doesn't keep accounts. The word accounts there is a scorecard, a ledger. You don't, you don't, you don't keep track. Okay. Guy, oh, that's number 73. That's it. We let it go. We send it away. But now notice this man's mega. I mean mega, large, enormous, ginormous issue that he's got to deal with. Jesus is telling this story, and he's saying, there's this guy. He literally, he says there's this master that he owes 10,000 lifetimes of salary to. We are talking generational debt. It it, it It was no way in heaven that he could pay it off. There was no lotto back then. I mean, it's just, it, it ain't going to happen. Now, don't see this as a picture that Jesus is selling, that, that Jesus, when we don't forgive, he sells us into servitude because of our debt against God and sends us into eternal destiny of hell and damnation. The point of the passage is simply this, that Jesus is using a custom of the day that they would literally do this, and he's trying to show the helplessness of people to take care of the divine debt that every one of you and I have before the holy living God of the universe that aside from Jesus Christ, we can't pay it back. And he's showing then this incredible dramatic expression of sweeping grace that God brings to us. Even remember as we talked last week about the the accumulation of sin and debt that we have against the living God, even if we're doing our best. I don't know about you, but I wonder how in the world could this guy rack up that much debt? I mean, do you just get scads of credit card opportunities and, you know, send them in and get the card back and just walk around Jerusalem and Jericho and and Samaria and just charging the world up and all of a sudden, man, you got 10,000 lifetimes of debt? Well, probably Jesus is using a little bit of spiritual hyperbole because you got to work really hard to obviously get into that kind of debt. But here's the amazing thing. This king, it's a picture of God. He's filled mercy, and he forgives the whole dead, and he's gone. It's just removed. Can you imagine this guy? I remember a number of years ago, I was heavily in debt. And it just weighed on me. Just weighed on me. Trying to pay it, and a lot of it was credit card, and just the interest was just killing me. I remember the stress of working it off in three years and getting some help. And, and then at the end of that three years, I wrote that last check for $800. And I was like, oh, talk about a weight off my back. 
Can you imagine? I, want to, I tell you that because some of you have done that. Enter into the pathos of this guy. I, I, I could pay that debt off. It was hard, but I paid it off. This guy couldn't touch the interest. And it's forgiven. Can you imagine High five in Jerusalem, walking around. I mean, not walking, man, you're flying. And then he turns around and he makes this mega, minuscule foul up. He goes out and finds another slave that owes him about two months. Two months' salary, not pocket change, but it's not nothing compared to 10,000 lifetimes of salary. And he throttles him. And then, and I think Jesus does this to accentuate how small-minded we can be, where he literally uses the same verbiage when, the guy, when he grabs the guy, just give me a little more time. And he says, no, I won't do it. I won't forgive him. And so what does he do? He does the smartest thing in the world. He throws him in jail, debtor's jail. Unbelievable. Think of the logic behind that. This guy is not only small of soul, but stupid in style. He doesn't get it. He wants his little bit of money so bad, he throws this guy in jail. So now his earning potentiality and possibilities are basically slim and none. In this whole case, it is obvious this guy has had a short circuit of his cognitive capacities. He is locked up with unforgiveness, and now he cannot unlock the forgiveness and the power and the potential for healing for this person to be able to pay him back. I think it's the height of stupidity, and I think Jesus is trying to drill that into our own lives to say, you know, you know, So the other subjects is comrades, common workers. They see this and they begin to rat the guy out to the, to the master who calls him back and he rescinds his forgiveness and reinstates the debt. Here's the principle very clearly. If you're forgiven, you got to forgive. Well, that's obvious. Yeah, it is, but it's not easy, is it? See, here's a reminder from last week. Who's the king? God. Who's the master? God. Who's the guy with the huge debt? Jesus is saying, Peter, Pharisees, Creeksiders, it's you. It's Terry. It's me. Jesus is implying that each of us has racked up, loved ones, a debt that we can never pay. We've sinned more than we ever imagined. But it's so easy for us as we get, well, move along in our faith to forget that. We look around, I'm not that bad. Someone said it this way, sin is the disease that we all suffer from, but we feel our neighbor's case is much farther advanced than ours and that most of us are simply on the verge of being healed from it. And we are, but at the point that we forget that we're still sinners saved by grace and need the touch of Jesus Christ every day, that's when we start forgetting about the death that was paid. And hear me, not all stories have a happy ending even with Jesus. Tree and I, we love movies, and the ones I really like, and she likes these as well, is they, they have these unexpected twists and turns. You, you can't just, you know, you don't walk in the movie and know where it's going, but all of a sudden there's a twist or a turn. Surprises you, comes out of nowhere. 
And then at the end of the movie, something happens that you just, out of the blue, just, it blows your mind and you go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. And we high-five each other. That was a good movie. And sometimes we'll be watching some of these movies and they just end and you go, really? We just spent two hours and this is what we get? When I read this story with Jesus, I kind of feel like that. You're telling this story, and this is how it ends? It's a surprise ending, and I think Jesus does it a little bit on purpose. See, when the merciful master hears about the action of this unforgiving servant, he's livid, calls him over, and he rescinds the forgiveness, and he delivers the man to be tortured until the payoff of the original debt. Notice he doesn't go back to the original judgment and say, I'm going to take your family, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to put you in slavery, which would definitely keep him in abject poverty for the rest of his life. There is opportunity here. And I think Jesus wants to clearly communicate that, listen, forgiveness isn't something that's going to send you to hell, but it's going to cause you some hell on earth. And, and so he, what he says is powerful in light of the physiological and psychological issues concerning humans and unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness. And Hebrews 12, 15 reminds us, don't let any root of bitterness take part of your soul or your heart because it becomes a root that becomes really difficult to extract and it becomes toxic to your heart, your soul, and begins to bleed out of everything in your life. And I have to tell you, I, can, I, I see people all the time that they might have a smile, but you'd spend 10 minutes with them and you know they're toxic. And I don't say that with judgment. I just say it's, it's there, it's evident. It bleeds out. And so Jesus says this, the master turned him over to his torturers, his tormentors, his jailers. Understand, we're not talking here about a guy. These aren't, these aren't guys that are you know, stretching a guy out on, on, a, on a board and they're putting him in, in locks and chains and stretching him out. It's really a picture. The verb describes sickness, adverse circumstances. It's a bill collector. I, I told you I had some significant debt some years ago. Uh, I was able to always pay my bills on time. Never been called by a bill collector or anything. But I can only imagine the stress that I felt when I was in debt to add to that. Hello, Mr. Riley. When can we expect payment? Hello, Mr. Riley. When can we expect payment? Hello, Mr. Riley. Do you realize that I would do everything I could to stay away from the phone? And then you know, back in the day, they don't do they don't do. But, but there's a, you know. Hello, hello. Anybody home? We need our money. Hello, hello, hello. You know the pressure of that, and pretty soon it gets in your psyche and in your mind and in your soul. And pretty soon, before you leave in the morning, you're going to look out the blinds. Is there any suspicious cars? Is there any suspicious people that might want to, you know, take over my life as I walk out this door because of my debt? That's the picture. That's torture. That's torment. You're not going to leave it behind. 
Research from all medical, psychiatric, religious fields note many sickness and human ills are related to repressed attitudes of unforgiveness, anger, bitterness, self-pity. I mean, just look it up. I don't have time to give you all the medical research. I could have spent hours just giving it to you. You know it. You see people that live that way. Jesus is saying there will be a toll exacted. There will be these things that are going to be extracted on your life and your well-being if you live this way with unforgiveness. Try to get payment through revenge. Evil doesn't disappear. You know what? It only spreads. And it spreads most tragically into all of your life and your character. There's another thing that's easy to miss here that says very clearly or dismisses the happily ever after tag to this story. And it kind of enters in for me to this domain of Jesus. What are you doing? What are you really saying here? See, that second debtor, he's still in prison at the end of this story. His situation has nothing to do with the master. I don't know about you, but I used to read this, and I just kind of thought that the master, picturing God, probably just forgave this guy, got him out of prison, and kind of as a come up as to the other guy, just to kind of, you know, put the screws to him a little more, he says, not only am I going to let that guy out, I'm going to put you where he is. It doesn't say that. That's a twist. He's still in prison. See, we don't know if that first servant ever repents and gets released so that he can release the other servant. Jesus doesn't tell us. He just stops. See, here's the question. Will we place somebody on the shelf of unforgiveness and leave him there, or or will we work to bring them into the circle of forgiveness that we've experienced? How critical is it, loved ones, that we need to make sure we're taking people off the shelf? Catherine Marshall, the wife of the late, great Peter Marshall, a pastor, chaplain to the Senate years ago, said forgiveness is simply this, releasing people from your personal judgment. It's where we, ex- where we will not exact payment for what they did. When we don't forgive, we are denying the Christ and what he did for us. I think I mentioned in the services last week, at least one or two of them, I recently saw a Creeksider who had moved away probably in the last, I don't know, seven, eight years. Served here. This person was on a ministry team and had some issues that were fairly, they were important issues, but me and another staff member wanted to work with him. We try and qualify people for ministry, not disqualify. A lot of churches probably would have said, you can't serve here because of this. But we wanted, to, we wanted to work with them. And we did for a while. And we sat with the other spouse and said, listen, we believe this would be helpful for this person to continue to serve as we work with them through this issue. Are you good at that? They said, fine. Well, over a season of time, it got worse. Nothing changed. And finally, the spouse came to him and says, I'm tired of this. You got to you know, you got to do something. So we removed him from the ministry. Still wanted to work with him. And it was a short time later, though, that uh, they went to another move away. 
It was interesting, though, in the short time that they were here, you begin to see this kind of bitterness well up. See, it wasn't our responsibility. We did everything we could to work with them. And I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back, but that's exactly what happened. Here's the point. This is six, seven years later. I recently saw this person. And I was walking over to him thinking, you know, I let bygones be bygones of the past. It's not like, you know, we hit them or anything. It just happened. There's these things. You got to do it. Decisions you got to make. Walked over. I wanted to talk to them and just greet them and see how they were doing, thinking that, you know what? They walked by, and this, and I said, hey, and this is what I got. Wouldn't even stop. I chuckled, and then I was sad, and then I was sad, and then I chuckled. I was sad because I thought, oh, God, this doesn't bother me at all. I get rejected all the time. I can handle it, you know. But I said, this person's soul is going to shrivel up. And the funny thing is, is God's probably going to put us, make us neighbors in heaven, you know? <laughs> because you realize that this whole thing down here, loved ones, that we do, this is a dress rehearsal. This is pre-staging for getting us ready for heaven. And I can imagine that when we get to heaven, God's going to say, oh, brother, oh, sister, I'm going to have you work on this because we're going to be in eternity together. So why won't we drop the stuff and let Jesus heal us here and now so that we can experience just a little more heaven on earth before we get there? But now I got my rights. I'm going to do it my way. It's my ball. I'm going to play my game. Friend said recently as we were having a pretty intimate conversation, I said it and I wrote it down. He says, time doesn't heal all wounds. Only proper care with time heals. That's the problem. Sometimes we don't go to Dr. Jesus to get healed. And we wonder why we stay so stinking sick. You've heard me say this before. There's probably... Maybe some of you see yourself in this story today. You've been hurt so badly. You can't believe you could ever forgive. You feel imprisoned, robbed of joy and peace. The hurt and the trauma, it is so deep and it affects you deeply. And I don't want to ever diminish that and just go poo-poo, forgive. There's a reality to it, but you've got to face it and you've got to take it to the person that can bring healing, health, and wholeness to it. You've heard me say this many times. The deeper the pain, the greater the hurt, the longer the healing process. But dear loved ones, for your grace and benefit, you got to get healed. Forgiving, you know, God, it's just a, man, it was one time on the cross, the ultimate pain. And then it's just, boom, he just forgives, forgets. As far as the east is from the west, so are your sins away from God. I love that. But that doesn't work for us, does it? It took me seven years to forgive somebody one time, but it started with a day. I said, I'm going to forgive them. The deeper the pain, the greater the hurt, the longer it takes to heal. But you got to decide or it will never, ever happen. It's amazing what God can do when you forgive. He wants to heal your memories, your marriages, your families, your relationships, your hearts, your soul. He wants to heal you. Forgiving is hard. The process is painful. But the first step to healing 
always starts with the decision. I want to quickly run through a few things forgiveness is not because sometimes we as Christians, we don't understand. We are not God. We are human. And sometimes we have to set boundaries in things. These are from the co-founder of New Life Clinic, Stephen uh, Arterburn. It's a book, Seven Keys to Spiritual Renewal. He notes these points just to help people have a balanced perspective of forgiveness because sometimes people for, try and forgive. They say, I want to, but they become more embittered because they can't move beyond it because they don't understand some of these things. Number one, forgiveness is not condoning the behavior. Once we understand the act of forgiving, never compromises our moral standard by condoning the offense. We are in a position to forgive even the most egregious of sins. To forgive is not saying what you did was okay. It is saying the consequences of your behavior are fully in God's hands now, not mine. When we forgive, we transfer the person from our personal system of judgment to God's. To forgive is to recognize the wrong done against us is a debt of sin. But remember, all sin is ultimately against God. And he took care of it on the cross. Therefore, we transfer the debt from our ledger to his. And we allow him to balance out the universal scales of justice. Well, I don't know if he ever will. That's why I can't. Because God will probably forgive him. Now, see, we have a cognitive dissonance right there, too, don't we? Disconnect. Because then we're saying, oh, gee, that's right. Didn't he? He'll probably do for him just what he did for me. Oh, yeah. My debt. It's not about forgetting what happened. We'd be foolish to erase from our minds some of the things done to us. If we were to do so, we would never learn from those experiences and we could find ourselves right back in similar situations. Believe me, when I've been burned, I learn. I make quick changes. I can adjust fairly well on the fly. And that's what we have to do. See, when we forgive, the terrible memories probably will never be forgotten, but they will gradually diminish the raw ones. That's what scars show us. Scars show us that we have this hurt, this trauma, but now it's healed. Oh, but it's still there. Yeah, but it's healed. It's not forgetting. It's not restoring trust in the person. Trust is an earned commodity. It's a a transaction between two trusting people. To blindly trust somebody who has hurt us is naive and irresponsible. If this person steals from you, you're not going to give them the keys to your home. If they habitually lie to you and disregard personal truth boundaries, you don't just take their word at face value. We can forgive people for the wrong they've done without immediately extending to them an open invitation to potentially, possibly do it again. Someone said, and I believe this in so many areas of life, one's past is a good indicator of the future. Hear me, I believe in the transforming power of God, but let me see it. Let me see it at work. Because sometimes our continually past behavior trumps that. And that's the reality we have to live in. Wayne Cordero said this to me one time. He said, too many people love God and trust people. This is what I've learned. I trust God and I love people. See, that's what forgiveness can do. I can love you, but I may not trust you. The last one, there are two more. It's not about 
agreeing to reconcile. Sometimes you don't reconcile. You just forgive. Reconciliation in some places may never happen. That's all right, but you forgive. Last one, it's not easy and it is not natural. Forgiving is difficult when it involves a one-time transgression. It's on the verge of impossible when the offense continues and continues and continues. Such circumstances require that we live in this attitude of forgiveness that can lead us to the action and activity of being able to forgive. So often Christians miss this. It is a time-taking, heart-wrenching journey. Seldom an immediate destination, but it must start with an immediate decision and determination before the living God of heaven. It is not natural but it starts with a decision that dovetails with the supernatural work of God in our lives to help bring healing and health. So that as Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you.